Hello there, and welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Life After the Pandemic, Helping Youth Move On and Thrive, presented by Dr. Heather Pelletier. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description down below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. Well, welcome everyone to the RISAS Fall webinar series, focusing on youth mental health, trauma, and the unique role that parents, educators, and communities play in fostering resilience in youth. This series, as many of you know, is brought to you by Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. It is so nice to see so many returning faces as well as new faces. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the CEO of Rhode Island Student Assistance Services, and I thank you for joining this learning experience on Life After the Pandemic, Helping Youth Move On and Thrive with Dr. Heather Pelletier. I would ask that you sign in in the chat to, and um, give your affiliation and role that you play in the life of youth. We are, as we all know, we are not in post-pandemic life, but yet our youth have returned to in-person learning and schools are dealing with the social, emotional, psychological, and health impacts the pandemic has had on children. For that reason, this webinar could not have come at a better time. Located below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, please don't forget to complete the post survey so we can get your input on topics for future webinars. By completing the survey, you will have the ability to receive a certificate of completion and a chance to win a $100 gift card. We are extremely fortunate to bring you Dr. Heather Pelletier. Dr. Pelletier is a pediatric psychologist at Hasbro Children's Hospital and clinical assistant professor in the departments of psychiatry and human behavior and pediatrics at the Warren Elkhart Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Pelletier specializes in treating childhood mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, trauma, somatic symptoms, and functional neurological symptom disorders in children ages two to 21 years of age. Dr. Pelletier welcomes questions throughout the presentation. So please put your questions in the chat and she will pause throughout her presentation um, to, for me to either read them or you to ask them out loud. So without further ado, I turn this over to Dr. Pelletier. Thank you so much for that warm welcome, Sarah. I very much appreciate that. I'm very excited to be here. This um, is not just a talk to me. It's actually the life I live as a professional every day because there's, as you're seeing on the school front of things in the community, um, we're calling it the mental health surge after the COVID surge, uh, where there's just a lot of issues affecting our youth. And I think it's important that not just the typical professionals on the forefront dealing with mental health issues are taught and receiving support on how to help these kids, but parents and social workers, guidance counselors, teachers, doctors, um, anybody who's crossing paths with these kiddos. So uh, I'm very excited about this. I do know that Sarah just asked for people to introduce themselves. I'd like to get an idea of who's out in the audience so I can really tailor this specifically to uh, what may be useful. I want you guys to walk away and really feel like there's practical skills you can take 
to your children's lives or in the classroom or whatever it is that you're, what capacity you're working with youth. So Sarah, once you feel like you have kind of a good idea, you can just chime in and let me know what the chat is saying and kind of who we have for representation here and feel free to interrupt me when you get that. Well, we have a lots of people working in schools, um, both in as uh, school support people, social workers and psychologists. We have teachers. Um, we have student assistance counselors. Great. We have people from community prevention coalitions. Sounds good. So I will conduct this talk, tailoring the content to um, your roles as professionals in the school, but also as parents, because I'm sure many of you have kids and um, can disseminate that nicely. Uh, so that, that'll be the direction I go. And if anybody has questions about the content that they want to maybe disseminate to another practice or another role that doesn't quite fit, please chime in and ask questions. I'm more than happy to uh, be spontaneous in some of our discussion around this. Uh, and I, I, to echo, I do very much welcome questions. I want this to be as interactive as possible while still being you know, uh, a webinar and didactic in nature. So thank you for, for participating and jumping in when you have questions. I know as an audience member myself, it's hard. I'm, a, I'm an active learner. So it's hard to have questions and hold it to the end when it no longer seems relevant. So I totally get that and welcome. Before I, I jump into everything, I actually do want to, um, at the risk of sounding melodramatic, which is not my intent, I do want to actually just pause to talk about what 2020 has been for all of us. Because uh, whether it be hardships or juggling parenting and your professional lives, 2020 was traumatic for a lot of us in the ways that it, it compromised our ability to sometimes take care of ourselves while caring for our little people and making sure they were okay. Some of us uh, really had to grieve the loss of family members, whether it be COVID related or just simply health conditions are passing away and not being able to, to grieve and process that trauma traditionally. So there's lots of ways that 2020 has affected us. And I think even though the, the topic tonight is talking about how to support our youth, you're going to hear me really fold in techniques for supporting your family members, taking care of yourself, because we have to be the best versions of ourselves and healthy and mentally stable in order to provide that care. So I just want to kind of start there and acknowledge that all of us have been through a lot as we're considering the ways that it has impacted our youth. So I, I actually want to start off with this returning to normal. We talk about like, oh, we're going to get back to normal. I don't know if, if you all used it, but I certainly found myself saying it as ways to keep myself motivated. Like this is temporary. We're going to get to back, back to normal at some point. I heard parents in my sessions and in therapy work. I heard doctors kind of keep using this normal as this carrot, right? It's not, not forever. Just we're going to get back to normal eventually. And I started to really think about this and, and wonder if, using this returning to normal or normality, is it really a helpful phrase at this point? Because what does normal look like, right? This normality has changed certainly now and also even moving forward, we can't say what this is gonna look like, right? There's a lot of uncertainty that's still looming over us that is to come. There's a lot with the Delta variant that we don't know. And as we've seen, there's always changing recommendations and guidelines. This is really difficult for kids. So this uncertainty, will likely be a very real applicable factor for at least many more months. And uh, some are talking about maybe it being years until things really go back without having to see faces with masks on or having to take those precautions, you know, in one way or the other. So I just urge us to maybe pause and think more critically if this is the best way to be supporting our youth, like hang on a little longer to like gets back to normal, because it almost sends this message of we can't do anything now to help you thrive, or there's not much else we can do to kind of build the skill sets to get through this. And so I'm hoping this talk really touches on some ways that we can start to help kids now 
Um, this after the pandemic, it's really should have probably been titled after lockdown, but the proximity of timing didn't make sense because we're far enough away from that. But the pandemic certainly isn't over, right? So this uncertainty is, is a piece that I just want to acknowledge and fold that into much of the content that we're going to cover today. You know, the, the changes and restrictions and guidelines, even this idea that vaccinated people won't have to wear masks, and then there's all this debate about masks in school. I don't want this certainly to turn political or to even go there. But the fact of the matter is there's differences of opinions, right, on masks. Do we need them? Do we not? And this is a real point of contention for kids and for families, for teachers. Um, it touches on belief system. It touches on um, how we cope with things. And I, I would hope that the majority of people recognize that going back to how things were in 2020, when we were all home trying to teach our kids and work at the same time and manage the stressors was a real life living hell for many, right? That was not easy. So to talk about wearing masks and to um, help kids recognize some of these guidelines that have to go on for a while, even if life is feeling more like it's returning to normal, is tough for kids to be flexible in their thinking. So um, this is probably stating the obvious, but the adults language and narratives that we use amongst ourselves at school, at home, related to masks and social distancing and guidelines really set the tone for kids to follow the lead. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind too, that we can help kids with the uncertainty and the flexibility it requires by acknowledging that it's uncomfortable and continuing to talk positively about the ways that guidelines will help us get back to this idea of normal, right? So continuing to keep that as open dialogue. In medicine, we, we've been having these very in-depth conversations and discussions around the effects of COVID-19 and the ways that they really extend so much further than just the virus itself. And initially in the beginning, COVID-19 fortunately wasn't affecting our children directly as much. And, and unfortunately, now that the new variant, the Delta variant is emerging, we are seeing more and more kids contracting and feeling, you know, greater symptoms. And so, yes, the virus is still a concern. It's really the areas of development and expected setbacks that we have for our youth that, that will come. It will affect this generation for years. So uh, most of the talk today is going to focus on these content areas. As expected, I mean, this is not novel, new information to you, but the effects of COVID, pandemic, lockdown, all that's associated uh, is really affecting uh, developmental and cognitive skills that emerge in early childhood. We are seeing social development um, deficits in some ways, obviously, that that's affecting uh, returning to school. And then there's emotional and psychological deficits and um, psychopathology that we're seeing on a, on a higher level. And then there are also some physical areas that we're expecting setbacks for months and years to come. So I'd like to start off maybe just reviewing some of these. And, and again, I realize that much of this is not new information, just to kind of emphasize why it's important to be helping children day to day, because we are going to see, especially in early childhood, where many of these kids, you know, might be three, four years old and really been for the last year and a half with their nucleus family and missing out on opportunities for socialization. And we know in early childhood uh, years that the socialization is what stimulates cognitive you know, growth, what helps them with language development and learning and sharing and all these pro-social behaviors. So we are seeing a greater increase in referrals to neuropsychological testing or testing in general to better understand language and learning for kids. Uh, in fact, many pediatricians have gotten hit to the game and realized, let's ride the wave and see what happens with time, because we might be having a false sense of what, what look like organic delays that may even themselves out and, and uh, rectify with more socialization as we return closer and closer to um, what felt like normal before. Childhood years. So I'm thinking here with some of the developmental issues that affect our 
elementary age kids, our early, I mean, our uh, childhood years, is that the fact of the matter during 2020, as adults, as teachers, as caregivers, our attention was divided with many tasks at once, and there wasn't really a way to compartmentalize our role in the lives of youth. We had many hats on at the same time. So consequently, has nothing to do with intention, but consequently the execution and the way that adults were managing behavior, right? We're having pro-social interactions while still trying to work from home or some families not able to work and having a lot of financial stress. There was less positive attention and a lot of times we saw more behavior issues emerging, right? So there's a lot more kind of redirection of behavior and attempts to manage behavior, but difficult for family members to juggle all of the roles when it came to managing the household, their, their career and their child's education without the child actually being at school. So this is one thing that will affect childhood development is we are seeing, especially when in 2020, when we first switched from in-person to remote learning, when many parents, I hope you guys all got emails, but I, I am doubtful, but I hope you got emails saying, wow, we are so thankful for you. We had no idea that our kids were that kid in the classroom. They are not paying attention. They are needing redirection. I think it kind of gave a new appreciation to school personnel that maybe wasn't there before, even if people said it or not to you. But I, I think that that was very difficult for families to have to split you know, their, their attention and manage everything. So there will be long-term consequences around some of the externalizing disorders that we saw emerge during pandemic, where kids are stir crazy being at home, not able to get out that energy and some maladaptive patterns of behavior. We are seeing a greater increase in some of those referrals as well. You know, another piece about uh, childhood that's difficult is many kids were separated from family members for prolonged periods of time. Grandparents who might have been primary caregivers here and there and not seeing them for months on end. Some even parents who were physicians and had to be working nurses and working in the hospital and had to be away from parents or went to live with their grandparents so that their parents weren't bringing home the virus. You know, there was a lot of separation there that will affect attachment. It will affect uh, the active role in parenting. And so even though we're, we're maybe not quite in the throes of that as much, the long-term effects we're certainly still dealing with, and we'll touch on that a little later too. One of the other areas that we're considering greatly is that, uh, you know, with childcare options closing during pandemic and kids not having school and, and, and early childcare access and resources, for some of our more marginalized populations where poverty is a real issue, oftentimes these uh, classroom experiences were where they were receiving most of their rich cognitive stimulation and social stimulation. And so we're seeing a lot of kids that are struggling because they simply didn't have access. And there may be lots of factors on the table. We're going to touch on this again at why, even if their parents were home with them, it was difficult for them to be stimulated in the ways that promoted growth and development. So there's that to consider. And then, you know, touching along the same line is that I think we can all agree that there's some systemic inequalities that were already existing in our school systems, in our uh, medical care, really across the board that we're, I think there's more dialogue that has been emerging around how can we rectify this, acknowledge it, kind of work through it. But this uh, pandemic really highlighted and exacerbated uh, a lot of that for many families where there was not enough resources and agencies um, available to meet the need. So I'm going to touch just briefly here, and then we're going to talk again about like some of the physical expectations and setbacks, but stress is a big one that we have to think about. So many families in experienced increased financial stress, right? So parents had to think about how do I keep my job? You know, many people did not have the luxury of being able to switch to a remote option and had to continue going out on the workforce. There was lots of stressors around how are we going to make this work? We saw increases in housing and food insecurity because of these financial stressors. And then many kids, again, not news to you. Uh, I'm sure you deal with it daily and you're aware of it. 
there was a massive increase in reports to DCYF. Uh, I think a lot of times when kids are in school, we don't realize what a safe haven that is for many of them throughout the day to avoid stressful uh, home environments and things that are not ideal for kids to be exposed to. So the longer we're all, even the healthiest of family units, we're ready to just have a break from one another, right, in COVID. So to think about just the increase in domestic violence and what kids are exposed to being home, it wasn't always great. Uh, some kids loved being home and for others, it was not a great situation. So when we think about ACEs, about adverse child experiences and the ways that they have negative impact on the health and development of kids, it's a very real factor to think about how this level of stress has impacted the entire generation. And of course, when we think about adolescence where essentially your entire being for most, it you know, totally revolves around socialization. Who am I in this friend circle? How am I being accepted? That this is the age where they really start to want to spend more time with their friends and their parents. And so here we are in lockdown in, in pandemic, right? We're kind of all, all together. And so this decreased socialization really led to what, what we're seeing as a decreased self-esteem, uh, not really having a strong sense of themselves and having decreased self-efficacy. And we'll dig in a little more to that too when we, when we talk about some of the social setbacks that we're expecting to see and probably what you're witnessing on a daily basis right now. The other area of, a, of pandemic that we're seeing has really affected um, adolescent development is that with the ways that the academics were affected by remote learning or distance learning, I think we had to find ways to make classroom teaching work remotely. And so sometimes there were there were times, right, where you might change lesson plans to make them more feasible. And what's happening a lot of times is that there's decreased opportunities for cognitive planning, for thinking about how do I execute this task and how can I kind of think through it? There was a lot of uh, just kind of going through the motions of remote learning, but not being truly invested in their learning for many kids, where it kind of felt like I have to sign on, I have to do this, but the active learning piece, I think, was harder when they weren't getting that in-person stimulation. So we're seeing some decrease in executive functioning skills. So it might look like ADHD, right? It might look like concentration issues or trouble organizing, but really what we're seeing is just a deficit in their ability to access opportunities to keep those skill sets fresh and working well. So many seniors, juniors even, I'm seeing there's really a decreased sense of efficacy and independence where it's hard for them to even see themselves as approaching adulthood and missing out on a year and a half, which in the grand scheme of their life doesn't seem like much, but it's crucial during that time of high school and adolescent development where there's uh, more apprehension about trying them, them, trying things themselves, self-advocating, really taking an active lead. And again, this is a, a generalization. There are still kids that are thriving and doing well without that. But for the most part, we're seeing an increase in kids who might have had stable uh, abilities at baseline struggling more than they did before with, th with these kinds of things. So I'm wondering, so far as we're talking about these steps of development, I'm sure that there's many of you in different school systems. Are, is this consistent with what you're seeing as far as the independence and confidence in kids, socialization? Are, are you seeing this firsthand on a daily basis in the schools? I, I'm not in the schools, so I'm not seeing that. Yes. <laughs> That's probably going to be a lot of yeses. Yeah. Kids are not talking to each other. Yeah. Brings us to the social. Yeah. Yeah. Decreased socialization. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so this list here is really where most of our referrals are coming, where there's increased anxiety around things that used to seem quite simple to kids and parents not knowing how to help propel their kids, even teachers thinking, how can I teach this lesson plan when kids aren't even raising their hand or they're, they're getting very anxious and freezing or not knowing how to speak to one another. But things from sharing, even knowing how to have like pro-social behaviors back and forth in young kids. I don't even think this is true for just 
early childhood, by the way, I see this all the way through adolescence where there's just a difficulty in perspective taking and understanding how others might be feeling or seeing similarities in the way they're feeling self-conscious that others also are. And that's why they're not talking, not that they don't like you or they don't want to. There's just a misconception of why socialization isn't happening. Self-advocacy I see is a big one that kids just are losing some confidence around. And there's been such a, I mean, I'm, I tried very hard not to make a lot of my talk around screen time and technology because I think there's been other talks about that and I could probably speak a whole hour and a half on this. But there was, you know, understandably during pandemic, electronics became a way to occupy yourself. It was the sole way of it. I think I've binged more Netflix in 2020 than I have. I've watched more <laughs> TV than in my whole life, right? And I, I feel there was this weird thing of like relief, like, oh, this is great and guilt. It was a interesting experience for me as an adult, but kids became even more reliant on electronics. And that was a pandemic in itself before uh, COVID-19 where kids were just getting totally sucked into to, um, technology in a way that they were sometimes their only friends were ones that they had never met in person, but were only socializing with online. So we already had that going on and then it just intensified and was exacerbated by almost this justification to use you know, technology. So I think we'll discuss it a little later, but it's gonna take even more encouragement from parents, from social workers, from teachers, to really set some healthy limits around that and to try to really, we're going to talk about exposure and response prevention, but how to slowly inch kids toward being more comfortable with socialization again, instead of expecting that they're just going to get it. So most of the time, I think with kids back in school, early in the school year, we see this, right? It's a little like slow to warm up, then they get going, they find their people, you kind of get moving. I don't think we're going to see it take off in the same way we normally would. I think it's going to take more effortful intervention and support for some of these kids to come up with like some scaffolded support for moving forward um, so that we can get back to this list of sharing, communicating, advocating, perspective taking, understanding that theory of mind, in case you don't know, it's just understanding that everybody's thinking what we're thinking at the same time. They might have a different perspective, increased confidence and working through adversity, problem solving, getting through some, you know, conflict resolution, figuring out how to fight fair with your friends and work through things. We're going to have to provide more structured intervention, which if I'm going to be honest, is likely going to take away from some academics and teaching. And I think this is why I mean to say returning to normal, I'm not sure is the most helpful because it's not teaching in the, in the normal way that you were before. I think there needs to be much more emphasis on mental health and stabilizing these kids so that they are in a position to actively learn and, and get what we need from them academically moving forward. If we talk about the expected setbacks with physical, the, the list is extensive actually here. There's a piece of my talk where we're gonna talk about pain and somatic symptoms because that is my specialty. That's what I do at the hospital. So I see a lot of these kids through Hasbro's PD rehab program. That's where kids come for pain, uh, functioning issues, uh, injuries, things like this. And then I'm also very much circulated into the GI department. And that's where you know kids feel with their bellies. So we see a lot of belly aches and headaches and things like this. And so... Um, this is my forte here talking about the physical piece of things, but, you know, from an activity standpoint, we're seeing that sedentary behavior has affected all of us. I mean, I think we can all relate to the ways that we were sedentary more so than we needed to be during 2020, um, staying in our house. And there's been an actual physical decrease in many kids' strength, stamina, core uh, coordination. We're seeing that also, where they just spending more time sitting, playing electronics and not out and playing creatively and climbing and doing these things. Um, so cardiovascular health, we're, we're seeing kids who were athletes before and very well-functioning, kind of returning and feeling defeated and struggling with the fact that they're now breathing harder than they used to. Their body hurts. There's like actual physical complaints around getting back to living and functioning. Um, so that deconditioning is very real. 
Um, and then of course I have screen time on the activity piece because that tends to be the barrier right now to actually rehabbing many of these kids and all of us adults back to a daily functioning life. We have real concerns for uh, our weight management clinics and their services are uh, tapped because there's been some unhealthy habits that many of us can relate to. I mean, even working from home now, I have to be conscientious. I'm, I'm working from home two days a week and I find I snack much more. It's just easier in between. If I have 10 minutes before the next patient that I'm going to see, I will sometimes have to catch myself and be like, oh, I'm going to run for a snack. Or I'm just going to, you know, it's a lot of boredom eating, nothing else for entertainment over a pandemic that's uh, affected these kids. And we have to have some timely and effortful intervention during the school days, even I think to talk about these topics, they may or may not be getting it at home with their parents. Sleep. So this is an obvious one, right? During pandemic, I think sleep schedules went out the, the door. It was hard for kids to sign on on time. And we're seeing now even kids getting to school and getting back to just having a routine in the morning is, it is the stressor, it is the primary stressor for a lot of kids. So uh, biologically, circadian rhythms have been shifted. And in order to get a circadian rhythm, a sleep-wake schedule that's healthy back on track, um, it can take anywhere between one and four weeks. So it's something that a family really has to commit to you know, educating their child and holding some limits to get them back on a sleep-wake schedule that's healthy. And that will mean limiting screen time and doing all these things. But I think it's good for schools to incorporate into their curriculum and have it be part of discussions around healthy sleep. The importance of decreasing blue light exposure in the ways that that halts our melatonin production. Things that maybe wouldn't have ever been discussed in your third grade math class, right? Or math subject or things like this, where I think we have to kind of bring attention to this so that kids are hearing it in the, during the school day. As far as stress and cortisol without getting into uh, a super anatomical discussion. Cortisol is released when they're stressed. And so uh, obviously during pandemic, many of us were subject to more cortisol, which we know leads to higher blood pressure, heart disease, type two diabetes. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of like chronic illnesses that, that uh, people are subject to osteoporosis, chronic diseases, weight gain. So I think that it's also important to know that even if kids were in utero, so this fetal exposure to cortisol, when we're thinking about developmental growth, there's ample robust research that shows, you know, women who are in abusive situations or high stress situations in war-torn countries, we're seeing developmental delays because of high levels of cortisol that are released even in utero. So that's something else for us to consider. Children who didn't even, weren't even alive during the actual heat of the pandemic and, and were in utero still are subject to experiencing some of these um, developmental setbacks that we're expecting. As far as the emotional and psychological functioning, I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that isolation significantly impacts our neurobiology. So we as humans are designed, uh, we need human contact and interaction to actually keep our neurons firing and developing. So from a neuro standpoint, uh, this has some impacts. And when we know that the neurobiology is off, this is what throws off levels in the brain, serotonin, things like this that make us susceptible to anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues. Uh, there are many mental health diagnoses such as bipolar, uh, schizophrenia, things like this that we know almost lie dormant. And then oftentimes it's a trauma or a big stressor that can onset uh, and, and have those start to manifest. So we've seen more of that also. And we're thinking about the, um, the ways that the exposure to stress and fear, seeing things on the media, having certain family circumstances is all really trauma for kids. It doesn't have to be contracting or seeing someone die, it can simply be being around all of the stress that makes kids more susceptible to the anxiety and depression that we're seeing come along with this pandemic. There's a very simplistic theory, uh, theory that says the dose of the exposure will predict the likelihood of uh, emotional and psychological distress and whether it needs intervention. So I guess in theory, right, like how much is someone exposed, but I don't think the dose has to be thought of as how bad or how 
how big was the exposure. It's more how many little aspects of the child's life was affected by the pandemic in one way or the other that may make them more susceptible to or predisposed to having an emotional or psychological issue. Distress tolerance and threshold levels, as well as resilience, because every kiddo is different, uh, does vary based on the individual and should be treated accordingly. I think I have a should and then incomplete thought there. So I apologize, I'm catching an error as I'm looking at it. Uh, which means that even two siblings from the same exact situation experience things may manifest differently, may have different experiences. So it's really important that we have our kind of detective hats on and are very aware and monitoring how each kiddo is responding without expecting them to fit into the certain box of how we expect kids to respond. I think that's what's gonna help us propel their tendency to thrive and to move on through this is if each child can be kind of treated individually and, and be able to listen to the distress that they're feeling. I already alluded to this, but there's been such an increase in reported child maltreatment cases and it was very difficult because DCYF was remote for a while. So there was less effective strategies for intervention. So many of these kids, even if they made it to DCYF with an open case, uh, have been tolerating these kids that maybe already had been experiencing maltreatment. It was intensified uh, with less access to interventions and maybe removal from the home and, and placed elsewhere. We had kids stuck on our uh, medical floors in all of our inpatient units for weeks, months. I think there was even actually an article in the paper about a, an unhappy family that couldn't see their kiddos. You know, it's, it's a tough one because kids got stuck and mostly kids who were involved in child maltreatment cases. So I already alluded to the fact that the mental health surge is very real for us at Hasbro and also federally. So it's not just in our institution that we're seeing an increase. This, this is nationally. It's nationally that um, inpatient hospitalizations have gone up. Uh, the length of stay has gone up, the acuity, the number of, we call them campers in our ER and our medical floors that are waiting appropriate treatment and placement. So in summary, the expected setbacks moving forward through pandemic that, that we're expecting for months to years are seeing more speech language and learning delays. So that may actually slow down the pace of curriculum that's taught. And that has to be something that's, that we're mindful of so that it's really meeting kids where they're at. Social, as we've talked about, really increased interpersonal difficulties, uh, greater levels of low self-esteem and decreased independence. From an emotional and psychological standpoint, we are expecting setbacks um, that relate to higher rates of anxiety and depression. We are already trending that way, unfortunately, as a society, and then this has only kind of propelled that in the wrong direction. And then physically, we're, we're expecting setbacks related to higher rates of obesity, problems with sleep-wake um, cycles, and longer-term health impacts that, to be honest with you, we won't actually know uh, for many years to come about the prolonged exposure to cortisol. And I think we're going to understand that there's lots of research right now. There's been lots of um, external grants and funding that weren't previously there that uh, I know many of my colleagues and, and other institutions are taking advantage of uh, looking at this very thing. What are the long-term impacts on uh, physical health uh, for, for those of us who have lived through pandemic and especially the kiddos? So let's go back to this concept of thinking about returning to normal. I think the piece that has me really pausing and trying to understand how my wait list has 92 kids on it and how I'm gonna ever get through that is that it, it's saturated across the board. And the reason is it's not just kids who maybe had a predisposition for mental health, who had hereditary components that played into um, how they were experiencing mental health issues, but we're talking about kids who were previously very well adjusted and doing well, now experiencing problems that maybe they did not have at baseline. And that throws us all for a loop because instead of having a few kids that need our attention in the classroom or at school, many more kids are struggling, even ones that were known to be self-assured and doing well before, maybe now having social issues. You know, the other interesting way to look at this is um, 
for kids, for some kids who were anxious and maybe struggling before pandemic, pandemic actually was a break for them in some ways. It was, there was a secondary gain to pandemic that allowed them to avoid social and academic stressors that now they must face. So if they already had social anxiety or difficulty there, it's exacerbated in the face of having to return after almost a reprieve for a year and a half where they didn't have to face some of those things. So not only is their confidence to face uh, these situations uh, maybe decreased, so has their skill set and ability to do so. And I think so, I'm seeing many parents, teachers, social workers, almost like at a loss for, wow, my kid's struggling this much. What do I do? They're clinging to me. They won't let go. Adolescents crying and demanding not to go to school. So I think it's a very real, tangible issue. Separation, same thing with separation anxiety. It felt better. It, things looked better for many of the cases I had seen for years for anxiety. They were, kids were looking great. And it's because they were able to avoid and their bubble allowed for, their, um, for them to avoid the things that were making them anxious. Things that were once easy are now hard for some kids. So this returning to normal is not happening the way they expected it to, right? Why am I struggling with this so much? Why is math now hard for me? Why is so-and-so not talking to me anymore? Right? Many social circles have moved on, the dynamics have changed, and instead of problem solving through it on how to, to work it out, talk about it, everybody's just freezing. That fight, flight, or freeze is setting in, and many kids just aren't doing anything, um, and, and, and they're regressing. Uh, unfamiliar emotions, so when we think about kids going back to normal, for some kids now, they're having big emotions and don't know what to do with it. If they're kids that didn't struggle with this before, they probably have underdeveloped skill sets that need to be taught, and like I said, the friend groups have maybe moved on, and then a big one here is that Pandemic, there's a lot of shifts in family dynamics and even who's living at home since the pandemic started. So kids are now returning to school with very different family situations than they might have before. Parents are, some are, are not working yet. Some have different jobs or have had to, you know, restructure uh, whose home after school might have changed. Some kids might have lost family members. So there's very real ways that dynamics have changed. So just normality is not feeling the same, even though they were all told once we get back to school, it's going to feel normal again. Right, so something to consider for that. So I do want to, I think they're gonna open up mics here. I do wanna just kind of reflect on some of this, hear from some of you, maybe discuss some of these um, anticipated setbacks, but also what we're already seeing for setbacks. Um, I'm happy to answer questions. We're gonna, the next part of this is really gonna focus on more practical uh, aspects of what can we do about this? Like how do we help our kids kind of move on? So would love to hear your thoughts and hear what, what people are uh, experiencing. Dr. Pelletier, I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, like for kids with separation anxiety, you know, things were better for those kids. I'm wondering, you know, I, I you know, certainly kids who were, who were chronically bullied or bullied in school, I think did better um, at home. I think that many kids with very supportive families um, enjoyed the increased family time and we hear reports of that. So I remember saying at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we're all in this same storm together, but we aren't in the, we really aren't in the same boat because right. depending on your circumstances, um, there were really the haves and the have nots as there have always been. And that disparity only deepened with the yeah. You're so right. And I think that's actually what makes it even more complicated as teachers and school personnel to help these kids is we don't always know the entire family situation, what that was like. So even pausing to ask a kiddo, right, or to, to pull them aside and learn what, what that was like for them or what they liked and didn't like about being away from school. It's almost like we had an inverse where the ones that were most acute and, and seeing uh, psychologists and, and seeking mental health, we no longer saw anymore because they were doing better, right? Uh, and I really hard air quote on that because it was a false sense of, of improvement. 
and and you're right like the ones that that I think were already strong academically had good family support liked the time together did well with remote learning and independent learning and could and could thrive with that and they're almost many of them disappointed about being back in school because that was their groove and that what they were doing well so every kiddo is responding different and I'm glad you bring attention to that because this is what makes it difficult for teachers to really understand and school personnel to understand how to meet each kid where they're at and use some of the skills I'm going to talk about with exposure and response prevention to help propel each kid forward in their own way. It's like really developing a treatment plan for each kiddo, each student that needs it. Yeah, and and some of the comments, um, you know, we all know and agree that lots of kids are have social anxiety, but may not be communicating it to helping adults. And uh, someone um, related to that says, uh, I think there needs to be time dedicated each week to allow kids to express themselves our advisory, I'm assuming that's a middle or high school, is super busy with all kinds of grade charting, naviance, and you know, really wishes that advisory would allow teachers to truly be personal with their students. Yeah. And I've heard this before that you know people advise that the first month, if you will, or first few weeks of school be really devoted to the impact of you know finding safe and effective ways for kids to you know, talk about the impact the pandemic has had rather than the focus on yeah. job, on learning loss, et cetera. And Absolutely. Yes. And for these high school seniors and juniors, you have to start thinking about applying for college. And so they're, they're juggling that stress without having to acknowledge how difficult you know, all of it is. I think I'm gonna to touch on that a little bit too about some resources that schools can offer and to maybe beef up some of our social emotional supports and, and provide opportunities and almost make it not that kids are selected for it because then a lot of kids don't like that, like to be centered, but having it just be like interventions that are offered for all kids, right? Or how can we all talk about this and validate some of what we've gone through um, and have it just be part of the curriculum. So I like that idea about advisory and making more personal connections with each of the kids. And, and someone mentions, and this is for younger children, um, you know, they needed to come to school. You know, these are three, four, five-year-olds who really didn't understand you know, what they were seeing, I think on the computer, I, I think that's what this person means. Um, Denise, if you want to elaborate on that, go ahead, but. Yes, yes, I had posted that. Um, they weren't even, not being used to not seeing us, they couldn't understand what they were even looking at. Yeah. They didn't, they couldn't get the concept. Yeah. And if there wasn't, a, there wasn't an adult to sit with them, then they were running off in the in the in the background. Oh, yeah. So it was really right. hard for that age group for us. Uh, understandable. And even like two, three, four-year-olds, their executive function, the frontal lobe of, the, of our brains, which is the last to develop, it's not even developmentally appropriate to expect right. that kids could sit for that long without seeing the person's body language in front of them or redirection right there. Like it's impossible to manage, you know, 12 kids or more in their own separate living rooms and manage the behavior. It was just it's just not conducive for learning. So you're right. right. They're thinking, what is this? And so to even transition back in person, there's a there's a, a learning curve that has to happen around expectations. What are the expectations for how I conduct myself, how I hold my body, how I interact with people? When is it appropriate to run around and when is it not? These are all things that usually are worked out before a kiddo even comes um, because they've been on play dates. They've had other experiences to interact with kids to deal with parents of other children. And, and this just simply hasn't been true for the early childhood years. So we're seeing more behavior yep. where we didn't see it before, right. as you had said earlier. Yeah. 
So, so one piece that I will acknowledge is probably a deficit in some ways in this talk, but I'm happy to fold it in after you say that according to time here is um, many of us are, are really teaching families and using token economies and teaching families that the use of positive reinforcement really modifies behavior better than punishment. And exactly this, like teaching kids uh, how to be goal oriented for short chunks of time using external reinforcement, mm -hmm. right? So really making the things that they're motivated by screen time uh, contingent upon holding their body still, listening to Miss Denise talk for a while, like really kind of earning tokens periodically to help with that because otherwise it's hard for kids to learn this. So thank you for your contribution on that. It is You're very uh, welcome. Kudos to you because that was a tough one. I many saw many kids with increased externalizing disorders that, and externalizing, I don't say disorders, behaviors. Um, right. I don't think it's disordered. It's a product of the pandemic that really required more behavior management and harder for parents to do that appropriately, like I said before, because their time is split between exactly. working from home and trying to get Other their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to shift gears a little bit. And I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because you're all professionals that work in this field. You understand kids, you understand anxiety and depression. But, uh, you know, the common signs are, are, are easy to detect, easier to detect, you know, isolating, withdrawing. Much of this, though, I think you can assume is related to pandemic, but you still want to be mindful and keep a pulse on it. So connecting with your kid, kiddos at school as best as possible, checking in with your own children. So mood changes, behavior changes, you know, crying more than normal, really seeing some difference in their academics and things like this are typical signs that we would usually see. And much of this is happening anyway, because it's been hard for some kids to just keep up academically when they're not in the classroom. So you're going to see a little bit of a learning curve. Sleep changes, you know, appetite changes, and some self-harm or self. So these are the ones that are pretty easy to detect. I'd like to focus a little more on some of the less obvious signs. Um, we've already talked about some of them. So the, the top line fatigue and, and maybe some somatic complaints like headaches and uh, stomach aches, things like that, uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time on. But the poor concentration piece. Uh, changes in friend groups, pulling away from friends and deciding they don't want to be social anymore or don't want to put themselves out there. Um, seeing a lot of tearfulness and like just overstimulation and feeling easily overwhelmed by planning and participating in activities. So I'm seeing a lot of kids with increased anxiety at just talking about leaving the house or going to grandma's or going with mom to the store, things like this that just typical daily activity is overwhelming for kids. Um, and we're seeing a lot more low motivation. So you know, the, we all see the kids in the classrooms that maybe um, we know they're having a tough time at home and they have some other stressors in their life. And those ones stand out to us, low motivation changes, but you know, it's the kids you might not expect to see this in that you want to keep your eyes out for. Anhedonia, which is another way of saying decreased interest. So if you have a kiddo that was super passionate about something and that's very much changed, they're no longer interested in activities that really excited them before. That's one of the less obvious signs to look out for anxiety and depression happening. Clinginess, really with some pessimism. And what I'm seeing with adolescents actually is uh, they're already sarcastic by nature, which is why I like working with adolescents, but you know, some really self-disparaging, self-destructive humor and sarcasm that almost um, really helps you recognize their lower self-esteem. Like I'm going to be working at McDonald's the rest of my life, you know, or, or really saying some things that imply they don't believe that they can kind of move on or do some of these things. So kind of keep an eye out for that. That might be a less obvious sign that they're struggling and very sensitive to rejection. So so-and-so didn't play with me on the monkey bars. Might've been something that happens all the time, but seeing a really big emotional reaction to some of these um, perceived rejections is another way to know that they might really be struggling. So I do wanna just take a bit of a detour here and, and maybe because this is my area of interest, but I've worked a lot already with school nurses at the start of the year about kids going to the nurse's office more often with somatic complaints. Like why so many? And all I can say is it's biology. So 
when we think about the amygdala, the amygdala, as we know, is the emotion regulation center in the brain. It's really midbrain. I like to, to use my fist like this because it acts like a gatekeeper. It's really, it's there to regulate emotions. And when it does that, it's the gatekeeper to our sympathetic nervous system. So when we think about anxiety, emotions, things like this, we know it activates our sympathetic nervous system. And then our parasympathetic nervous system jumps in to, to balance it out, bring us back to relaxation, re relaxation and able to stabilize. But what happens is when the, when the um, amygdala, the emotion regulation center of the brain is having to work really hard to manage mostly negative emotions, but even, even overexcitement with happiness and, and overstimulation can cause the amygdala to have to work even harder. What happens is the, the sympathetic nervous system that has two jobs, pain signals and emotion signals, both run along these nerves, right? It has two, it's a recipe for disaster because the same nerves have two jobs. So when emotions are out of whack, it automatically makes kids more, adults even, all of us more susceptible to amplified pain experiences. And then it works in the inverse. When we're in pain with a bellyache, maybe from constipation or digestion or a headache or things like this, it can exacerbate um, and amplify what we're seeing for emotional reactions. So a lot of interaction stuff happening between somatic, so pain experiences and emotions. So if the, the, the amygdala is supposed to act as a gatekeeper that, that really when it's calm, content, doing what it's supposed to, doesn't have to work very hard to regulate emotions, it acts as a gatekeeper and stops pain signals from getting through the amygdala, which it has to do in order to get to the outside parts of our brain where our pain receptors are. Right. So if we don't have a brain, we don't have pain. And the amygdala is the gatekeeper. When we're having a lot more stress, lower self-confidence, fear, anxiety, amygdala is going to work. And even on imaging, we'll see that the, the structure of the amygdala becomes floppier. It's less tight. So more pain signals are actually getting through the amygdala that register to the brain. So this is why biologically we're actually seeing more headaches, physical complaints. It's not just that kids are complaining more, their threshold is dropped. Is that there's more emotion signals that are amplifying on a biological nerve basis their sympathetic nervous system, right? And all those pain receptors. So, so I have bio on this biopsychosocial model of pain really emphasized because I think when, when all of us can conceptualize these pain behaviors through a medical or biological physical explanation, it's oftentimes easier to empathize and work with a kiddo than when we think it's just know, trying to get out of things or, or exaggerating their experiences. So important to really look for some of those, is this kid complaining of belly aches all the time? The start of math class, always asking to go to the nurse. These are examples of kids that are struggling. Even younger kids will say it. Also somatic vomiting is a very common one where mm. kids have a lot of emesis and this creates difficulty because right now, as soon as the kiddo is throwing up or having any nausea, they're sent home because of COVID protocols. Uh, we're seeing a lot of kids have uh, anticipatory anxiety about going to school and having some morning and weekend, even like Sunday night vomiting episodes, um, which scares parents. And then we go into, oh, what's medically wrong, but it really can actually be explained by a strong biopsychosocial model. So to real quick here, just to kind of reemphasize and have more of an illustration, if you're or a visual learner like I am, it's, it's not that kids, uh, you know, a lot of times when I talk about pain with kids or physical symptoms, and there's nothing that's going on medically after they've been worked up. They'll say, oh, you're saying it's in my head. And I always kind of joke and say, it is, it is in your head because your brain is what registers pain. So if you have a brain, you know, you're going to have pain. And if you don't have a brain, then that's the only way to not experience pain. So we have to help them understand how stress can exacerbate things biologically for them and make them more susceptible. And, and that also helps them understand why they have to kind of work through some of the things that make them anxious and not comfortable instead of just avoiding them. So when we think about, you know, headaches, belly aches, these things that kids are, are complaining of at school, 
we know what this is just a model I often use. It's it's recycled, so it's not exactly uh, to what we're seeing with kids in school per se. But the injury, event, or illness is kind of like the entry point for a pain experience, and in this case, it's likely the event, the stress of school, having to go back, leave their parents, you know, socialize, all of these things that are kind of stressful that can lead to headaches, belly aches, the things that we see often in kids. And what happens is when a, when a kiddo is, their pain experience leads to, yep, this isn't very comfortable, but they're not scared of it. They're not scared to go to school in pain. They're not hesitant. There's no fear there. And they're allowed to confront, you know, whatever it is that they're feeling and then move on to recovery and keep going. What we're seeing, we already were seeing a lot of this, but what we're seeing more of is that when belly aches are setting in, kids' threshold for what they can tolerate has decreased over pandemic because they simply haven't had as many opportunities you know, to be outside the home interacting with discomfort and uncomfortable situations and problem solving, there were seeing a lot of like catastrophizing. My belly hurts. I can't do this. I'm scared to go to school and be sick or be away from my mom. And then avoidance sets in. And then we have this like whole cycle of deconditioning. So important that we're interfering with that. Um, and this is going to map onto some exposure and response prevention that I want to talk about and how we help kids like work through things rather than Oh, you don't feel well or, oh, you're stressed. Okay. You don't have to do this or we can get out of it. We have to help them work through the distress in order to get back to functioning appropriately and helping them thrive. Some other things I want to point out, and, and I, this is interchangeable. It doesn't even have to be secondary gains to pain. It could be to, to anxiety, but a lot of times, excuse me, what we'll do as adults is we'll accidentally reinforce this negatively, right? So if we see our kids in discomfort or stressed, even in our classroom and our own children, what happens is it can increase our own anxiety and distress. And so in an effort to decrease their stress and decrease our stress, a lot of times there's some over-accommodating of anxious behaviors so that we both feel relief. And remember the definition of negative reinforcement is to when, a when something gets you out of a situation or behavior that, or, or um, activity that you don't want to do. So if your kiddo is, is at the grocery store line crying because they want a candy bar, right? If you just kind of give it to them and move on so they stop, you're negatively reinforcing that. So uh, we want to just be mindful of how we're responding to pain complaints uh, when we know that they're medically okay. So if the kiddo does not have a fever, there's no clear injury, we can assume that stress is likely exacerbating some of this to work them through it. So a lot of times when kids are sick or anxious, we decrease expectations in a way that has secondary gains to feeling this way. So what we're doing is actually reinforcing the sick role, reinforcing this anxious role. Sometimes kids get special privileges, right? If they're really shy and don't wanna go out and do things, they get more affection from their parents, get to miss some school, get to take more breaks, or maybe get to avoid things that are anxiety provoking. So good to think about like, what is accidentally reinforcing some of the problematic maladaptive behaviors we're seeing in the classroom or with our kiddos. Now for exposure and response prevention. I'm actually not sure how many of you are, and it can just be a quick yes or no, because I don't know how deep to get into this. This is what I do every day. So I sometimes don't, I don't want to be condescending, but I also don't want to skip over the important pieces. But exposure and response prevention is a, a form of therapy. Uh, it's, and I don't know, is anybody familiar with it? Is it something that you guys use in school often? I'm seeing some shaking of the head no. So, okay. So for those of you that might be aware, I apologize if this is redundant or not new information, but... It is the most empirically supported intervention for anxiety. So in essence, right, anxiety, we all have it. It's a normal spectrum. It's an emotion we all feel as humans. Without it, actually, we'd be in danger. So if we never felt anxious, we'd be stepping off curbs and not looking both ways. We would be late for work and not able to hold a job. We'd be failing tests and assessments because we just didn't have any anxiety that pushes us. So we need to have anxiety to help us, but there's a lot of false alarms that can become conditioned. None of us are born with 
a fear of heights or panic attacks per se. It's something that becomes conditioned in the brain through learning experiences, through hereditary components, through nonverbal transmission from parents, teachers, caregivers to, to children. And it's oftentimes done inadvertently. I don't think I've ever met adults that you know, intentionally teaches a child to be anxious. It's something that kind of develops. And most intuitively, what makes sense to us when we see anxiety, when we feel anxiety, is to try to get away from, to decrease the, the stressor or the trigger that's making us anxious, right? The tricky part about that is it works. So when we're anxious about something and we avoid that thing, we immediately feel better. So of course, as humans who, you know, when something is reinforced, we repeat it, we begin avoiding the thing that makes us most anxious. And this is actually how clinically diagnosed uh, anxiety disorders develop is it's that recurring pattern of avoidance that um, feels better in the moment, but makes things worse in the long run and conditions the brain to be having false alarms and to be over-worried or, or excessively worried about things. So it's been around for a while. Um, ERP was developed in the 70s. And when something is empirically supported, it means there's robust research, longitudinal research that has very good controlled variables to show what interventions work. So everything that I'm going to talk to you about today is what's supported in the literature as the first line intervention for helping a kiddo with separation anxiety, social anxiety, generalized anxiety, PTSD, OCD even, it's all the same. So the tricks and the, the techniques today, you can actually apply to your own lives, to your kids in school. And I think um, many kids will not have the privilege to access mental health care, but if you can walk away from tonight and know how to do exposure and response prevention in a kiddo, this may actually be the intervention that they need in the school system. And some kids just need a little small dose. Parents need to be supported in how to help tolerate their child's distress and approaching things rather than avoiding it. And many kids and families I'll see maybe once or twice, just to give them the framework and then they can take it to their lives and disseminate it. Others, as you know, need a few more supports around this. So in essence, the, the response prevention means in most cases that there's a stimuli, something that makes a child anxious, and then there's a strong urge to avoid it. And response prevention that we're doing means we're exposing them to the very thing that makes them anxious strategically, and then preventing them from responding in the way they typically do. Avoidance is usually what we see. Other times it might be, uh, you know, for a kiddo who has some separation issues or gets worried if mom isn't home at 3.30 when she's supposed to after school, who starts calling excessively or texting, the intervention is expose them to what makes them anxious, something bad happening to mom, you know, and that's making her late and actually preventing them from excessively texting so that they have to sit with their distress and gather data that shows mom came home, she's okay. The likelihood of something bad happening is lower than my anxiety is telling me it will be, right? But kids and adults can't start to challenge the way they think about things that make them anxious unless they have data to do that. And most often kids have avoided what makes them anxious for so long, they simply don't have accurate data to sort through. So they need some help like reevaluating things. So for many years, systematic desensitization, so gradual systematic, like moving kids slowly towards something is the, was the basis of ERP and what we thought was most effective. More recently, I would say probably in the last 15 years or so, there's been strong data that shows flooding has equal efficacy. Flooding means like doing the hardest thing first. So rather than inching your way up to the thing that makes you the most anxious, just do the biggest, hardest thing, knowing it's going to be really tough. But what we see is when a kiddo can do that and does the, the really hard thing, everything else feels easier. It provides evidence to say, I've done this, so now I can do that. 
So I always tell people and kids, I give them the choice. There's no right or wrong way to approach ERP or exposure work or, or challenges. You're going to hear me use different language around it. I usually have this discussion with them and say, what do you think? Do you think you're more likely to follow through with doing the scary stuff if you work really slowly? Or do you just want to do the big, hard stuff so it takes less time to start feeling better? Then I let them be a, a participant in choosing that for themselves. Oftentimes, parents can predict how their child will do better. And so most will choose the gradual systematic desensitization because it's also easier for parents to tolerate the distress with their kids you know, through this. So this kind of therapy does require grown-up involvement. With adolescents, we try to promote more autonomy and independence to set their own. We, we create a hierarchy, if you will, where it's almost like a fear ladder. So let's just take these kids with social anxiety, right? Literally the first step will be walk in the hallway with your head up rather than looking at the floor. Let's have that be the first goal. We're not gonna talk about what comes next. Let's get really good and confident and come back and process what that feels like. If it's raising your hand in class, if it's telling the kiddo, I know this makes you anxious. So I'm gonna ask you this question in class today, right? I'm gonna call on you to ask this question. So they're getting a chance to have information ahead of time that helps decrease their anxiety not to have them avoid it, but to help scaffold and, and propel them to feeling ready for it. So the more you can collaboratively build steps to help them with this, it moves them forward so that they can move from walking with their head up to saying hi to someone they used to talk to, then saying hi to someone that they maybe have never talked to, reconnecting and asking how was your summer, right? Or what was your favorite thing you did? Starting with basic conversation, then you just kind of keep moving them forward. But it takes an adult to sit and do the goal setting with them. Most kids cannot do that individually. Some can, most cannot. Adolescents, we really try not to force them to do something they don't wanna do because we all know that if you pick up that rope with tug of war, you're now in it, you're involved in it and you're maybe reinforcing the wrong behaviors. So I really try to work with them on finding motivation and reasons that they want to work on their social anxiety to maybe get back to things they were doing or to hit some of their goals. And most teens are pretty workable with this. So this can be used every day in any situation with any kid. Um, it doesn't have to be a clinical diagnosis. I wanna pause there and ask if there's any questions about this. We're gonna, again, talk about more how to maybe implement it in the classroom, but are there any questions about this modality of intervention or how it works? What are some of the you know, concerns with it? Anything at all that people have questions about? Either you can speak up with your mic or, or send it in the chat and Sarah can read it out loud. I'd like to say something. Um, this is so timely for um, for somebody, a student of mine, um, who um, was put on my caseload, but then he went into VLA last year. I'm, I'm an inclusion teacher in high school. And so he was on VLA last year, did a great job. He was the first ninth grader in the entire district to finish. He was great. Came back to school and started panicking started getting physically ill because now he hasn't he hasn't been to school since he was now in eighth grade in the middle of his eighth grade year he's now in 10th grade yeah hasn't been out of his house he's he suffers from an um from um like asthma and underlying conditions so his mom didn't want him to come to school so a great student and um but now he's physically ill so um today we we met with his with his mom and him and and um so, and we have a wonderful team of qualified professionals at our school. So what we're doing with him is we're sort of, he's going to just come to school in a truncated schedule yes. starting tomorrow. It just for like maybe first and second period, then he'll go, he's going to meet with the psychologist every day to check in because he's, because it's, he's making himself physically ill from the anxiety of all of a sudden now he's in a class of 27 students. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I, I could see in the, on, he was, he came to school one day and, he, and the first day of school, he was 
I, I saw, I said, oh my goodness, this Panic. poor is suffering. I, I could see it in his eyes. I said, I said, oh my goodness. Yeah. So I went over and I asked, I said, are you okay? And he said, no, no. And I said, oh boy. Yeah. So, um, but I, but I know that this, this, this ERP, which I never heard of, but well, you, didn't, you guys didn't even realize that you were creating no, but a treatment I, plan for him yes. in the same way that if he'd come to see me, yes. usually I'll reach out to schools in the form of a requested 504 plan and send a reintegration plan. So it's not excusing the child from school. It's saying right. in order to set them up longer term, I think more schools should, should incorporate this. So we're going to see an influx in 504 plans, hands down. Like there has to be a willingness of school districts, of, of school personnel to understand this is how it's going to happen. And yeah. many of these kids may be on their own reintegration program where it's, okay, we're going to go half days for the first three days this week. We're going to increase one class period. One of the other techniques that um, I use often is something called a recovery day. So if the child would have otherwise stayed home because of physical illness or even just debilitating anxiety, what I'll often write in the plans and good for the school social workers and school psychologists, others who just put in place instead of waiting to hear from a professional on it, to say, let's work with it. Let's meet you where you're at now and have a, a collaborative stepwise plan. The recovery date says, no matter how you're feeling in the morning, just get yourself to school. And, and this is a tricky one, I understand, but I think there could be ways to actually open it up to a more of a classroom setting because there's gonna be more than one kid. Is before I used to have to work to see where can this child go once they get to school to just be there, to acclimate and settle in before they're expected to be back in the classroom, jumping into learning, testing the hypothesis, am I gonna throw up when I get to school? Because most often they don't. There's enough like negative social implications of vomiting at school that most kids have the resources to pull it together. And so we need them to see, I can be at school and be okay before we start increasing the expectations. And what we find with a recovery day is if we say, yep, don't worry about the, the academics, you're gonna come in and we'll get your schoolwork from the classes, but you can be in the guidance office or in the libraries or some, and you'll just work on things at a slower pace until you're ready to go. We see that the school attendance issues are less of a problem because kids are already physically in the building and that in anticipatory anxiety is worse than anything else. So then they're able to just go to class when they're feeling more like it. And usually it's just one period, sometimes two, and then they're there participating for most of the day. So I think that because so many kids are struggling with this, it might be good for schools to even think about how can we have a classroom location where these kids who are on reintegration plans for the long-term benefit of school attendance might be able to go and just work at a slower pace, take the time they need to maybe do some mindful breathing. Maybe there's school personnel that are coming to work with them and talk them through the plan of getting to class, the next class more emotional supports with that. And then you start to increase. And so typically I like to see within three weeks or so that kids are back to full days. So yes, it's not ideal, but at least they're gaining the confidence that they're able to have longer term success rather than this whole, get there for a day, miss three days, get there for another two days, miss another week. And we see these school attendants and we're gonna have huge influx in truancy, which was already an issue in schools, right? So to help them socialize, to help them think about functioning in the classroom, it's super important that adults, all of us, parents, caregivers, um, school personnel, really validate their discomfort without trying to convince them to feel otherwise, without saying it's all gonna be okay. That's something that comes natural to us, but it can feel very dismissive to kiddos. Just simply saying, this is really hard. This is scary. And leave it at that. You don't even have to go into problem solving. That helps a child feel like, okay, you hear me and you're recognizing that this is, this is tough for me. And it's important that no matter how trivial their worry might be, you're, you're listening and you're approaching it the same way with this ERP, right? Meeting them where they're at. A couple of people have raised the issue of increased fighting 
among students. And a person is asking, is an increase in fighting a possible result of the pandemic, actual physical fighting? Yeah. And I, I actually am glad this one came up because I think a lot of times we think of physical fighting as, you know, opposition, defiance, like strong interpersonal issues uh, with getting along with others. And while that may be true for some kids, please remember that anxiety doesn't always present as shy withdrawn. Some also have an externalizing presentation of anxiety that comes out in impulsivity, irritability, no tolerance for dealing with some social situations. So that rush of anxiety that they're feeling often feels like an adrenaline rush, like similar to anger. So there's oftentimes a lot of acting out. So, so this is where I'm saying validate discomfort. I think we have to be not condone the behavior, but come at it through a, you're really struggling, right? There's some big behaviors that are not characteristic to what I know about you. So that way it's not punishment. I mean, yes, there has to be consequences, but it's not coming in with a heavy hand, but more saying, let's better understand what's behind this. And oftentimes it's actually anxiety, not knowing how to deal with that peer conflict because they haven't had the opportunity to work through healthy conflict resolution, stopping and helping them work through it. Maybe the kids that are experiencing more externalized uh, behaviors like this, their ERP possibly needs to be around tolerating others, working through discomfort, having more interactions with that peer with some supports from personnel on how to work through certain things. Uh, but, but yes, I, I think that this is not the first time I've heard that there's more like physical aggression and a very low threshold before we're seeing that aggression or ver even verbal aggression lashing out. So thank you for that, for that question. When you're validating, validating discomfort, it's important to still encouraging the functioning or the piece of, so it can be an and, it's not a but. So it's, this is really tough and we can find a way to help you through it. Like Linda was talking about with that student, right? It's not a, how can we excuse you from it? Or how can we push you to just kind of like plow through it? It's more of a, let's, let's validate how uncomfortable you are and come up with uh, a plan for functioning. We also have to be really careful in doing that. And, and Linda's example was good, is that we have to be mindful not to over-accommodate anxiety. Remember, when we know a kid is capable and they have the ability and we're rescuing them from situations that are stressful, the message that our behavior is accidentally sending is, you're right, you can't do this. You're not able to stay at school. Well, I'll come get you. Right, And that's opposite of what we're trying to do. So it's super important that we're mindful about how our adult responses to child behavior, whether it be anxiety or something else, is, be, is intentional about what it's reinforcing. Right, And we need to let them struggle a little bit with their distress, provide scaffolded supports, but struggle a little bit so that they're increasing their threshold for what they can tolerate and giving them more opportunities to gain confidence in their ability to work through these tough situations. I think kids a lot of times know what they feel in their body with anxiety or even depression, but for many kids and teenagers, it's very difficult for them to identify their specific fear. So they might know, I don't want to go to that class or I hate gym class. What we need to do is ask appropriate questions and sit with the child to understand what's your biggest worry? What's the worst thing that could happen? What is your brain imagining could happen when you go to gym class? Because there are many cognitive distortions that kids get stuck in. And I'm going to show you a quick slide, but you can also just Google cognitive distortions. Thinking traps is another way we call it. And it gives you a fabulous list of errors in thinking that we all make as humans. And our job as therapists is to help kids. This is actually cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a, it's a modality similar to exposure where we're helping them identify what am I scared of? What thought am I having? And how is that making my body feel? And then how do I behave in response to what I'm feeling? but they need some support first, like figuring out what am I exactly worried about? So why haven't you texted your friends from last year? I don't know, I don't want to. Okay, so let's talk about why don't you want to, right? What are some things you might be worried about? I often throw kids a bone and we'll give some forced choice that I know are, are common to see if they resonate with it. So I'm scared that 
you know, Johnny won't answer my text or that uh, Sarah doesn't like me anymore, right? Or that I'm not raising my hand because I'm scared to make a mistake. Once we identify what they're scared of, we can help them rationalize a little bit better, think through why we're gonna ask them to change their behavior, why it's worth kind of pushing through a little bit. And then you're actually acting as the therapist in that way to make a, a tailored plan for what's helping these kids move forward. And then helping them recognize that it's okay that the thing that they're worried about is, is a thought that they're having, but it's a false alarm in your body where your body is having these big reactions or you know, feeling like you have a fight or flight to leave school or have panic attacks. So we have to retrain the false alarm. And the only way to do that is to face the things that are making us anxious or angry or whatever it might be and working through it. So this challenging of the anxious thoughts piece is where I think it's good for school personnel because you're with them every day. I felt like this even before pandemic when kids come to me in therapy and and talk about interpersonal struggles or things at school that make them worried. So often, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, I think schools need to have exponentially more social workers and support staff to help because being able to walk a kid through this tough stuff from preschool all the way through as it's happening in the school building the same day, the same week is far more poignant than me trying to like retrospectively go back to process some of it. Their thoughts and feelings that the proximity for kids is very important, but being able to help them challenge some of their worries and take it to the next school day or setting small tasks is very important. So this collaborative goal-making or identifying small steps toward helping them out of their rut is essentially ERP. So these plans for reintegration, it could be how to help a kid participate more verbally. If you're seeing that there's a lot of interpersonal issues, it could be pulling them aside and saying, you know, I'm noticing this is really tough. What are you worried about? Coming up with a little bit of a plan with them, like almost like a challenge. And this is where token economies work really well because you can be, you can set a challenge. And if a kid does the challenge, the exposure, because they want the reward or they want the token or whatever it is that's going to work toward a reward, it doesn't actually matter. So rarely do kids understand, yeah, you know what? Abstractly, this makes a lot of sense. I'm going to do this thing that's really hard so that long-term I feel much better. Never do kids think like that. It's what do I feel right now? What do I need? So when you have a carrot, a little bit of a dangle there with behavior mod or positive reinforcement, which many schools already do token economies, it's great to have the good citizenship rewards for like being kind and things like this, but we may have to shift it to great job using your voice and participating in class. Great job sending me that email to ask me a question when you were having trouble, because a lot of kids also aren't communicating with their teachers because of social anxiety. They haven't had to do it, so they avoid it. And then the token economies often help propel kids to just do it because they want the reward. And then it doesn't matter because they're still doing it and rewiring their system and how they're anxious. So in the spirit of time, I am going to skip this one because I just kind of alluded to the idea of thinking traps, but I do encourage you guys to go kind of check out um, what the thinking traps are, common ones for social anxiety or something that we call mind reading, where kids believe they know what other kids are thinking about them or what they're thinking in general. And oftentimes they are wrong. So, uh, you know, this, I'm not going to talk to Sarah because she hates me or they, my out, they think my outfit looks stupid today, right? Stuff like this that probably isn't true. They do a lot of mind reading as they avoid because they think they know how other kids are thinking or feeling. Another big one is what we call fortune telling where kids will say, I don't want to go to gym class because I'm going to fall down when I try to kick the ball during our kickball game, right? So they do a lot of trying to anticipate how things are gonna go before they actually happen. So they avoid it before gathering the data they need to see that I can do this. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was. The likelihood of this thing I'm worried about is less than I expected. We need to have the behavioral exposure piece to help them with that. So, you know, just some, some things to kind of focus on is 
really reward effort and bravery. The smallest steps forward when you, when any of us make behavior changes, it feels better and we want to keep going when others are acknowledging it and being like, hey, I saw you do that. Are you doing better at whatever it is, even with our spouses and our family members? So when, when kids are getting positive affirmations for the, their efforts and the small changes and people are noticing that, especially their teachers uh, and social workers and people in the school, that will uh, propel them to keep going with it. So as far as special attention, I always tell parents and caregivers to be mindful that you're not attaching a lot of special attention to the anxiety, to the emotional difficulties, uh, to pain, to somatic presentations, and that you're not withholding it entirely, you're just shifting when you give it. So if your kiddo is craving more special attention or wanting more time with you, wants to stay home, wants extra privileges, give that to them, but hold it contingent upon functioning. So instead of like being very coddling and clingy when your child is anxious and saying they can't go to school, you almost have to ignore the anxious behavior. You're not ignoring the child. You're ignoring the anxious, anxious behavior. And when they go to do what they're supposed to and come back, that is when you give them all of the hugs, kisses, special attention. Hey, let's stop by and get a McFlurry for your brave work today. You went to school for the whole day. So you're giving that special attention, but attaching it to functioning and pushing through. And that's actually what modifies and propels kids to get going rather than you didn't go to school today. Let's go home and just watch movies together, right? Or getting to be on their screen, their screens the whole time. So we want to make sure we're, we're watching what we reward. So physical rewards are great and extra privileges uh, within reason. I don't think we have to be buying our children lots of stuff, but it is something that um, even teachers and, and schools can think about um, including that. What are some classroom privileges? There are a few teachers that, that do a really nice job at having homework passes. So getting to be excused from an assignment of their choice within reason, not tests or any of the big stuff where they might need X amount of points to get that. So you're in charge of like giving them points and, and catching their bravery. They're raising their hand, they're talking socially. And when you go and give specific labeled praise, I'm using Johnny and Sarah a lot today, but Johnny, I, I know it's been hard at recess. I saw you go over and ask to play. I wanna give you a token toward a classroom privilege for that so that they have to work over time to get it, but it's goal oriented, it's goal, it's incentivized. That helps kids a lot with feeling like they have a motivation to do that. And a homework pass for most kids is, very motivating. Lots of schools and classrooms have other rewards and other things that can be helpful to, to, to spark that interest in kids. So um, some other tips, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to kind of like, just, just really touch on some of them. It's really important through pandemic. And as we continue to, to live with the changes and whatever direction this is taking us, since none of us know, is it's really important to remain involved and informed about the changes that are happening on a state level and also federally, so that we can talk to our kids, our students about the expected changes. So it's not feeling ambushed or not knowing when things are coming. And it's not about pushing your own agenda or belief system, but saying, hey, this is what to expect. We're going back to mask mandates, or we're gonna be going back to these things within our school system on how we're gonna be moving. Have lots of open, transparent conversations about it and give them chances to talk about what they hate about it, what they understand about it, but very good so that uh, kids aren't feeling like it's personalized. I think that's something that happened a lot with kids during COVID is they felt like their parents were saying no to socialization because they were just being told no or it was a, a consequence rather than the kid fully understanding what was going on you know, in the world around us. So it felt very much like a, uh, you're saying no to me instead of understanding what's going on. So remaining informed, I think it's important to really use age appropriate language and this is different for developmental phases. So toddlers should not be having media exposure to what's going on in the news around COVID and illnesses and things like this. It's just not healthy for their development. 
Um, so it's good to talk about what's going on in very concrete, simplistic terms, you know, about a virus. Um, we don't want it to instill unnecessary fear of like leaving the house in general, but being able to kind of use stories. And there's, I was absolutely floored at how quickly authors and writers were able to pull together children's books and resources, like within months of COVID, there were really great resources. So a quick search on Amazon, there's some amazing books for young children on how to talk about what's going on. And I anticipate that there'll be even more that come out as you know, we're expecting things to unfold with the Delta variant in whatever direction it goes. Young children, I think, can have some limited media exposure, but not too much. Um, and okay to really, again, keep things concrete and simple facts, allow them to ask a lot of questions and answer all of their questions, not say it's none of your business or just because. Um, or you're too young to understand that, find ways to have age-appropriate language to answer all questions about COVID um, the, to the best that you can. So not too much detail, no over-explaining, but enough for them to really kind of uh, know what to expect. And then adolescents, especially during uh, social development, really need to kind of know how is this affecting my daily life and what to expect. And so they can tolerate. It is appropriate developmentally for them to have some media exposure and to talk about some of this, the hardships to have the deeper conversations around um, how does it affect our nucleus family, our community, and then the world so that they're really kind of understanding how to disseminate that as they move through their development. We already said this, I can't say it enough. It's super important to validate emotions often and genuinely. So I think as most adults, we have a tendency, myself included, even though I'm the one teaching this right now, to jump into a fix-it mode. Like, how can I make this better? Super well-intended. But a lot of times when we jump to fixing it, we're moving faster than the child is ready. They really need more time to just hear that somebody is validating and understands their distress without trying to make it go away or fix it. So uh, that's why these, these opportunities at school and in classrooms to just process, like someone was saying, express and talk about what this is like is very important before we start moving into how do we fix it? You know, what does exposure look like? So anytime you can with your kiddos, just really validating. And, and reflections and validation can be as simple. It seems almost like too simple. When you have a kiddo fighting, right? You're really angry. And that's it. What you're doing is just reflecting what it is you're seeing in front of you. This is big, scary, right? This makes you nervous. You're frustrated with your science teacher. You don't really like your math teacher very much. It's okay to validate how people are feeling, even if you don't agree with it. Uh, there's nothing that it condones, but it, it just shows them I can feel how I feel. So I would say that oftentimes children talk more when you say less. So when you can just validate and leave it at that and not jump to, to problem solving and fixing it, sometimes they'll then ask you. And that's a whole lot better of a conversation when they're the ones asking for support and talking through it than when we're preachy and we're talking to them and they aren't ready to hear it. So please keep that in mind. We've already talked this, this, this tip here, encouraging functioning and safely stepping out of comfort zones. This is ERP, right? ERP is helping a child move through where they're currently comfortable and recognizing that there are limitations to, that they're imposing on themselves by how they're thinking and feeling or what they believe about social situations or, or just general anxiety, their performance in school. And I find that uh, if a child feels like you're doing therapy, they're not likely to participate. But if you make it kind of playful, like, I don't know, I think you used to play a lot with this whatever kid on the playground, I think you can do it. I'm gonna pose you a challenge. How about you go start a conversation with that kiddo for a point when you come back from recess? You wanna accept the challenge or de decline it? You know, make it like a, and oftentimes when you pose it that way, kids will, I got, okay, I'm gonna do this. Cause they want the point, they want that you're setting it as a playful challenge rather than a, you have to do this. So I would think creatively about how to motivate each child, you know, and, and pose it as just part of the day, how to help them. 
And then uh, I think a big one is that sometimes it's good for us to participate in whatever our child is struggling with. So if it's leaving the house or talking to a new kiddo, all right, let's set up a dual play date. Let's go together. Let's scaffold that by you doing more of the thing that makes them anxious. If it's exercising in gym class or being around other kids because they're scared. All right, let's go out and practice. Let's go practice kicking the, the ball for kickball that makes you nervous right now or whatever it might be. So when adults can join with them to show that I'm in this with you, you get more compliance rather than feeling like they're forced. And I always just throw this slide in when talking about like parental influences and adult influences because really uh, grownups, it makes a difference how we, what we think and what we say. And so if we're surrounded by positivity and communicating success and validating how they feel and coming up with adaptations to help propel them forward, um, and we're monitoring our own distress tolerance, that sets kids up. Now you can be anxious as heck and hide it, right? Do your best, like you don't, they don't have to hear all the things you're concerned about with them going back to school. Fake it till you make it when it comes with uh, instilling this confidence in kids. So I think even in the classroom, even if you have doubts yourself about how this learning is gonna go, with some of the restrictions or mask wearing or where the curriculum is, really talk in a way that's, we're gonna get through it. it, it's tough, and let's find some ways to be creative with this. So they need to hear that positivity from the adults um, and that changes how they think. I think this one's important because we're not through pandemic yet, right? As much as I'd like to say we are, there still are some chances that schools will go back to remote learning because we're seeing some outbreaks with COVID and it's like a very real discussion. I think we're working really hard not to, the truth of the matter is we don't know yet all the ways that this is going to go. So continuing to work on strategies to help kids stay connected socially through these ups and downs of what's happening with pandemic, I think is really important. So these are just some examples. There's tons more. I'm sure you can think of some, but it's going to take more than just uh, talking to friends on video games. But how can we have play dates outside? How can we kind of interact and have games over Zoom, things like this, but important to stay connected. Super important to, to prioritize structure. Kids will buck you on this and be prepared for them to be angry. And we know kids thrive with structure. That's not new information for you. So uh, they're going to test the limits at first. We call it an extinction burst. You can expect it to look like it's getting worse in your classroom and at home when you set some limits or really prioritize structure. They're going to see it get worse and then they're going to acclimate once they see that their behavior or their response isn't reinforced. So I always tell adults to be compassionately firm. And the reason I say it this way is I think that some parents, even some teachers have a hard time thinking of limit setting without thinking of being strict, right? Being strict, being harsh, but you can be compassionate and firm at the same time. You can be gentle in your tone and be firm and not budge on your expectation of something, right? Or setting a bedtime. So that's a big one. Bedtimes and meals, I think we have to reincorporate into prioritizing in the home so that we're addressing some of those like physical setbacks we're expecting to see after pandemic. Encouraging and rewarding healthy food choices is a big one that I think families can do at home. We could even do that in school and talk about it. And then really requiring follow through with chores and household responsibilities for those of us that are parents so that they're learning how to continue functioning right through all of this. So structure is super important. It's also very important for us as grownups to model healthy coping. So to be able to, I always call this, we call it a broadcasting technique where it's good for parents and teachers to almost call out their own anxiety or even sometimes I'll make it up myself. Like I'll, I'm not anxious, but I'll say I am. Oh gosh, I was running late today. I was so anxious. And I had to remind myself, it's okay. Sometimes we're running late and we'll be able to kind of keep moving. I'm not usually late. So what you're doing is kind of showing them that you too, as an adult, experience stress and anxiety at times, feel some low moods, maybe feel anger and frustration. 
So validate that they feel that way by modeling for them and then talking through what you're going to use for coping skills or how you might approach the challenge or the, the problem in front of you with healthy solutions. Taking space when you need it. Being able to say to the kiddos in the classroom, I'm feeling very frustrated right now that you guys aren't listening. I'm going to take a few minutes of space at my desk here, right? Or at home, I need to take some space. So you're modeling taking space is okay uh, within reason and that they can do the same thing to ask for that. Important that as grownups, we're protecting time for preferred activities and um, hobbies, things that keep our mental health stable and keep us doing well, and really challenging our own negative thinking and maladaptive distortions out loud. And then I think it's very important for us to, uh, to exercise and acknowledge gratitude. Uh, there's lots of research that shows even very medically ill patients going through chemotherapy who are living with cancer and fighting cancer their outcomes are greater and better statistically. Like when we actually look at research, when somebody is able to maintain gratitude and positivity. So important to find those silver linings through pandemic. And then just really staying aware, you know, the stuff that we've talked about today, your own intuition at monitoring these kids and kind of just watching. There's looking for signs. If you're not quite sure, even asking them about it and then really bringing it to the attention of school support, school psychologists, social workers, you already are those people to link them into mental health. I encourage maybe even offering more group options. So more than just like a lunch, a lunch bunch or those for kids that already had offering more of that. So more opportunities to plug kids into like group options to help with social stuff, adapting, even talking about family stressors. If there's any way we can give therapeutic interventions at school that will help more kids access mental health that is already saturated and they might sit on wait lists for a while. Kids Link is a very helpful resource to have if you don't already have it. The number is there. We have lots of, of uh, supports and systems, so and they're also good at um, connecting with community agencies if our wait lists are full. So this is just to review what we've already talked about, really kind of model self-care, talk about the tough stuff, validate them, and then help them identify their worries and make steps toward moving through their anxiety and distress rather than avoiding it. Appreciate it. We went right up to the, to the last minute. I apologize. There's lots to discuss, and I appreciate your contributions. I'm happy to, to kind of stay on if we need to, to talk a little bit more if there's any questions that we didn't get to, but thank you all so much for your attention and for being uh, strong supports for these kiddos through a tough time. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Pelletier, and, and to all of you for attending. From the, from the comments in the chat, this was very well received. In fact, there's a re there are requests being made for a part two. <laughs> so um, please, I'm certainly appreciate Please complete the survey and indicate when it asks what future topics you would like to hear about. Um, please indicate, um, you know, what more you'd love to hear from Dr. Pelletier and um, on any other topic. Yeah, yeah it, might, it might be good to come back and see how is this gone implementing these techniques and what barriers are we running into and, and happy to support any of that. So, yeah, thank you. All. So, Again, thank you. I just want to say, um, join us back on October 7th to hear Dr. Selby Conrad deliver a webinar called Adolescent Substance Use, How to Talk and Listen to Teens About Substance Use. So that's our next one coming up on October 7th. Good night, everyone. Thanks for watching. If you like this webinar and would like to see more like it, please find our social media down below. Also, remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you would like to enter for your chance to win a $100 gift card, please fill out the survey in the description below. Thank you.